This episode is brought to you by Rewind. Rewind offers e-commerce brands a solution that protects their stores against unexpected downtime. Rewind adds an undo button to your store, continually saving every change you make and backing up the critical data which runs your business. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable and durable outdoor furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 97 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Ryan Woodbury, the co-founder and co-CEO of Needed. With 97% of pregnant women in the U.S. taking prenatal vitamins and 95% of women still deficient in key nutrients, Needed is on a mission to empower women to find real nourishment on their journey to motherhood and beyond. In this episode, Ryan shares with us her story from growing up in Pasadena, California with dreams of working as a marine biologist, to attending boarding school in Connecticut, to studying environmental science, and then choosing to pursue a job in finance, to working as an investor at Velos Partners, to working at an aviation startup called Surfair, to earning her MBA at Stanford and starting Needed. She talks about taking some bad advice from a board member, why the people you work with throughout your career matter so much, why she hired a partnership coach to help her and her co-founder, and where she goes to get re-energized to help keep her focused and motivated each day in building needed. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan, I'm so excited to see you and speak with you and hear your awesome story in Building Needed. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Hello. Lee, I'm thrilled to be here. It was so fun that we sort of knew each other in a, a past life that I'm sure we'll touch on. And it's just nice to reconnect in a new setting as I'm just thrilled to Thrilled to know you, thrilled to be a part of your ecosystem. Yeah, no, I mean, now you're in the founder seat, right? I mean, we met when I was at Launchpad. Yeah, I think we were both in the investing seat when we met initially. I was at Velos, I think at the time, a small VC firm here in LA. And and then, yeah, that was eight years ago now, nine oh years God. ago, something like that. <laughs> we, were, we were trying to, I remember with our friend Elise, we were trying to do the first like, you know, female investor group to, you know, combine the very few of us that were in that space. Yeah. And it's amazing. Just like, I think when we were investing in LA, I mean, you knew everyone that was investing in LA, the market, the investor market, at least down here is just. Yeah. I was a small little group of people and now it's so big. I'm like, who are you? And who are you? Exactly. And I don't know any of you anymore. Cause I've been in that, like, you know, black entrepreneurship hole that <laughs> not socializing, especially with I guess our, you know, our lovely COVID times too. <laughs> yeah, that's like extra black hole, right? It's like, not only are you working in your own business and you're like heads down, but it's also COVID. So double whammy there. Indeed. 
I remember also, it was like reminiscing. I was like, oh my gosh, Ryan, so many like random memories. I saw you at a conference. And then I remember, I think I went to your birthday party or something in Malibu. <laughs> probably did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. It was, it was some kind of awesome house and party. Um, that was really fun. But anyways, you're like, why were you there? No. Um, no. Cause like, I mean, I adored you from the beginning and Aww. I just used to get to see a lot more of you than I do now. That's true. I know pre COVID times. But anyways, I want to hear, I, I'm so excited. I actually get to hear your like true life story. You know, like I've known you for a few years now and I'm like, wow, I actually don't really know you. Right. I feel like sometimes I do these interviews and I feel like I know these people more than my closest friends. Cause I don't really ask a lot about their childhood. Right. So let's start with your background. Where are you from originally? And what was it like growing up? What kind of kid were you? Yeah. Happy to start there. And um, so I actually grew up here in LA, but on the other side of LA, I grew up in Pasadena. And I was a very outdoorsy, animal-loving kid. Every moment, second, I, you know, I have a lot of friends that joke of, I don't know a lot of, you know, current culture, TV shows that we all watched growing up, because that never was a part of my life. I was always outside. I had a menagerie of animals. I you know, my first entrepreneurial venture was breeding my bunnies with my next door neighbor that we would sell to the local pet store. And that's basically what I spent all of my time doing. And I think LA is wonderful in that you're so accessible to the outdoors. And my dad was a big mountain biker. So I went biking with him every weekend or hiking as soon as I, I think I was even starting at you know, four years old, he had a tandem mountain bike that I was on the on the back of. And, you know, a lot of the best memories are that regard. And I think I, I generally am the happiest camper when I am outside. Um, and LA was a great place. I did find Pasadena, even though I have so much appreciation for it now. It is, a for those of you that aren't familiar, maybe a smaller, more conservative community on the outskirts of LA. And I was definitely someone that was always itching to get out of Pasadena in different parts of LA. And I, I was lucky that um, in middle school, I started working for the aquarium underneath the Santa Monica Pier. Have you ever been here there as a, like an LA local? No. I worked there when I was in middle school cleaning shark tanks was like, I guess my first <laughs> like real job. Where do the sharks lead. go when you clean the tank? They were all small sharks. So I'd oh. be in the tank with them. It wasn't like a, um, it's a small like educational aquarium. So none of the sharks are like bigger than like two feet. Um, and most of them are smaller. It wasn't like you were, you know, in they can't a, like bite your hand off. Shark. Like even at that age, like they can't bite your hand off. Right. No, no, yeah, they're small. They're literally all little babies. So, um, and they were, I think, generally, I think, probably more scared of me than I was of them. So there was never any kind of real worry I was going to get hit, hurt. But that, um, <laughs> I think, access. Even though I grew up in Pasadena, I think starting in middle school, spent a ton of time on the west side where I live now, by the beach, and was certainly always happiest by the water and was able to the aquarium was, you know, I would usually have my bike there to go get lunch. It's amazing. I feel like how times have changed is I don't know if you would let in LA a middle schooler just romp around on right? their bike. In the yeah. That's of a the little terrifying. It sounds terrifying. Used to be. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I don't know. I fell into a lot of beach time, a lot of time in hiking in the Santa Monica mountains, and then um, really started my yoga practice around that time as well. And I think just falling into, there's so many yoga studios right where that, that aquarium sits on the border between uh, Venice and Santa Monica. So you got into yoga as a middle schooler? I did. I like, so I would say I'd done yoga even in elementary school um but really got into it when I was in middle middle school there was this um donation-based studio right above the aquarium where this husband and wife kind of couple led a kirtan like bhakti flow class that was transformational I think for me it almost um it was one of my favorite things in the world back then and I think you know, the, the couples, Govinda and Radha, as they're like known, would sing the entire time where you did yoga. And I think 
that really took me to a different place as like a kid and had been a, has been a, I think a guiding aspect for the rest of my life and something that, you know, wasn't part of the, the norm in my like past, you know, life where, you know, I had the luck and the privilege to go to private school and attend a country club and wasn't the, the day-to-day I was living, but was very much drawn to not spending time there and spending time either at the aquarium or at the yoga studio um, or in the mountains where I could. I had no clue what yoga was at that <laughs> age. Like absolutely no clue. I don't even think I knew what an avocado was. Not that they're completely related, but <laughs> you get my well, Where did you, um, where did I, you grow up again? Like? In Delaware. Yeah. Cause like, I mean, so I ended up leaving LA, actually I actually went to boarding school on the East coast for high school. And, um, avocados were one of my favorite, favorite foods as growing up as a Southern California girl. They were a mainstay of my diet since I was like a baby. Um, and my mom nicely used to ship me crates of avocado because you couldn't <laughs> locate an avocado in Connecticut. Thank you for validating this. Okay. Cause no one really <laughs> believes me that there was no such thing as avocados in Delaware, like in the eighties, nineties and whatever. It just doesn't, didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't find them like very difficult. And you know, uh, Connecticut, New York at the time. And I think that's all changed, but certainly in the, that time frame. Yeah. I'm sure there's yoga studios too now, but I'm sure, I don't think there were then either, you know, I'm there just was, I would there. say there was a yoga studio in Connecticut, right by the like middle of nowhere high school that I went to. So I was lucky to be able to like maintain a yoga practice while I was in high school. So they did have that, but no yoga or no avocados. And then the other, I guess I started on some of the health trends very early. So like I started drinking kind of kombucha in middle school as well and got very, very like just loved it. And my dad used to be in New York for work all the time. So he would always drive out to Connecticut to see me um, at school and GT's, um, you know, Synergy Kombucha basically had just started to get distribution in New York at that time. And um, so he was nice and would always bring cases of it to me out to my like dorm room in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut, but they hadn't gotten their kind of like stability and supply chain issues sorted out yet. So pretty much every time a few bottles would explode in the back of his rental car, but he, uh, he nicely still um, would bring in pretty much every time he visited. Now, so you went to a boarding school for high school on okay. the other side of the country. That's pretty insane, right? Especially for that time. I mean, this was like, I'm assuming kind of pre iPhone days, right? And oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So you, there was no cell service at the high school, <laughs> which actually truthfully was really nice. And I wish I could go to more places that didn't have cell service now in our day and age. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that's pretty advanced. I, I'd, I'd say to like send your kid or even as a kid want to go so far away at such an early age. I mean, that's like 13, 14 years old, right? Yeah. And I think a little bit of it was truthfully, I was a, like a kid that I think had this, wanted to get out, like didn't like again, have a lot of appreciation for Pasadena now, but I think I found the day-to-day growing up to be a little bit sort of slow and uninteresting and was like very eager to get out and about and do other things. And boarding school was proposed to me as an option for just an amazing education and access to all of these insane resources. And my parents, like, I guess, presented it, had me tour a couple of schools. And then at 13, they kind of, this is, I think, you know, my parents are very involved, but also have always been very supportive and, you know, giving me information, but allowing me to make my own decision. So left it completely up to me to decide whether or not I would go. I think I jumped on it because I immediately saw, I mean, the school had its own, you know, farm and the number of different types of classes that you could take, like the academic kind of side of it was unparalleled. So it was an amazing opportunity, but at 13, I don't think I really understood what I was getting myself into for moving 3,000 miles away that young. And I would say, you know, the first year was amazing. It felt like summer camp. It was so fun living with all your friends all the time. And then the next, um, I had a really tough time my sophomore year because the reality sunk in that like, 
this is my life now, not, you know, being at home with my parents and my brother. And that was, I think, super saddening. So, yeah, because I guess all the holidays and the birthdays and the little things start to add up that you can't be with your family for every little thing when you're that far away. And that that starts hurting. I mean, I'm, you know, a lot older than that, obviously now. And I've got my own family and my, my I'm in L.A. My parents are in Delaware and I feel that all the time. And we don't even want to live together, you know? <laughs> Like we at least want to be around each other though. Totally. And it's made, it's made me like very close. I think with my family since then, and I have a much younger brother. So when I was younger, it felt like I wasn't around for him growing up, but then we were lucky. We've spent a ton of time together since. So I think I've made up for it. I was in graduate school while he was an undergrad. So we got to see each other like four days a week. And then he actually lived with my husband and me for the last year and a half. And yeah, you made up for it after. <laughs> it was a, it was an interesting, an interesting time. And yeah, my dad would always rub it in being like, hey, Ryan, I'm at the beach. It's 75 degrees and sunny. Like, why aren't you here right now? Like, are you having fun in the snow? <laughs> oh my God. That's a really important lesson or a good lesson, I'd say, to learn early on that you actually want to live near family. Whereas I think if it's the opposite and you're like aching to get out and then you get out, but then you meet your love of your life and then you end up staying so far away and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is this wasn't supposed to happen. I didn't think this was going to go this way. Yeah. So that's interesting that you got to learn that early on. That's really cool. And so what did you want to be when you grew up? What was kind of something when you were a kid, you're like, you kind of dreamed of? I wanted to be a marine biologist. That was very much like what I wanted to be for a long time. And I really was sparked, I think, from love of animals, love of the ocean. And I loved my work at the aquarium. And I think I was really motivated early on then just by, I think, an insight that I had, which kind of led me on my path now, even when I was in middle school, was just, I was able to get people to care about some of the esoteric, you know, algae science things that I cared about by building in the connection for how it impacted sort of human health or some sort of greater storytelling behind it. And most of my like early days were environmental driven. And I think I was kind of jumping from thing to thing, figuring out where's the best way that I could solve and make an impact around both like environmental and human health. So after the aquarium, I worked for an environmental reporter for three years working on kind of stories about Southern California environmental issues all through high school. And then in college, I was an environmental science major. Um, I realized pretty quickly after having a long time view of being a marine biologist that so much of it required um, lab work behind a, um, a microscope and microscopes made me feel sick. So I ruled that out as a possibility, but wanted to somehow be in that ecosystem, but wasn't sure if it would be from a straight science angle or from a policy angle. Um, and a lot of my kind of early days was around, I think, trying out different roles within the greater kind of environmental ecosystem. What were some of those jobs that you had of your first job? Yeah. So the aquarium environmental reporter for three years, I then worked for a startup incubator, I guess my freshman year of college that was launching kind of a lot of the 1.0 clean tech companies. So had experience, I guess, in startup land from an early stage. I worked for a couple of environmental nonprofits doing energy audits around campus. I went to DC and worked on the Hill um, the Senate, for the Senate, Senate Committee for Environment and Public Works when basically the Senate was drafting um, their version of the climate change bill um, before a lot of that got paused with um, Obamacare and, and a few other, a few other startups um, in the energy space. And I think was very passionate about the various issues, but I think coming out of college was a little bit lost as to where exactly I could fit in to make the biggest impact since the problem that we were looking at was so big. And I think I'm, I'm someone that's very motivated by big problems, 
but also like am motivated when you can see a stepwise path of how you can actually solve it. I felt that I had a wide range of skills, but I didn't have any depth anywhere. Um, and as an environmental science major, I shocked basically my parents, my boyfriend, who's now my husband at the time, and my friends and the professors, if I didn't say that before. And I actually um, took an investment banking job out of college. So you went from like environmental science, hey guys, I'm going to be a scientist to being like, actually, I don't even like microscopes. So I'm... <laughs> Go I'm going to Goldman Sachs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Going to finance. Basically, it was this like whim my senior year of college of like, I don't know what I want to do. I just want to be trained in something. And like, I really just need to learn some like skills. And I think basically it was a hunch to that regard of like, I think they'll teach me fundamentals that will be helpful in anything that I do going forward and give me a lot of credibility. And then I was writing a paper my senior year around just like kind of like a thesis around how environmental change would increasingly be made through consumer advocacy and consumers pushing large brands to become more political and be more active in terms of taking stands on issues and that bigger change could end up coming from actually downstream consumer pressure versus, you know, after I think after spending um, time in Washington was a little bit deflated around anything being able to get done from top down pressure. And that like, I think pushed me of like, maybe Goldman can make sense. Um, but I, you know, I ended up getting an interview. I think they took a flyer on me because I Smart had good grades. Yeah. How did you get an interview over there at Goldman Sachs? How did that happen? Luckily, it was it was like, like a like luck, I think. Like they had hired the entire West Coast class because I was late in joining. Because I, you know, applying for a bank is something most people are kind of doing for two years, but I think they'd lost one of the analysts that had accepted. So they had one spot on the West Coast left, but they didn't have any women. So they needed a woman. And I think they were in the final stages of, you know, okay, we need, we need to hire someone fast and we're only going to basically have a bias for women. And she seems smart, even though she doesn't seem like, but maybe it was just curiosity of why is this resume applying to Goldman? Like we should just know. But I got the interview and I called my dad two days before the interview. And I was like, Hey, I have a, you know, an interview at Goldman Sachs. Like, what do I need to know? And he was just like, I don't have time for this. Like, Ryan, I, you're smart. Like you can do like whatever you want. Like, I think you, if you wanted this job, like you could have gotten this job, but in two days, like you're not going to get prepared for an interview. I think you should just decline it. And what? I would help you if it was a month for now, but like in two days oh from my now, God. Like <laughs> I am such a procrastinator. It would have been like two hours before the interview. Hey dad, what do I say? <laughs> yeah. So anyways, he didn't have high hopes for me, um, which he now feels like terrible about, but it was just, you know, I think even your dad being like, uh, don't even go there. Right. Um, you should just cancel it. That's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> my, um, like, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with this. Um, one of my best friends though, already had a Goldman job and she came over, like marched right over. She's like, yeah, I can prep you for this. And she spent like four and a half hours with me kind of going through the basics of what I needed to know. And so I at least looked like I had made effort to be, you know, prepared for the interviews. And then I was just like, you know, showed that I was prepared slash just took the gamble, I think, of being very honest with them of, you know, why I wasn't a typical candidate, but why I wanted the job and why they should hire me. And two super days later, most people only have to go through one super day because, which is an all day, you know, like 10 interviews back to back in a row. And then they make a decision. They brought me back for a second one because I think they didn't know like what the hell to do with me. They gave me a job. And that was my first job out of college. <laughs> That's funny. And, it, and full circle, I guess, going back, I got exactly what I wanted out of it. So it was the right decision and worked with amazing people who Goldman, despite, you know, the reputation and what you think, like they have, I think a, a culture whereby people are very 
kind and focused on helping you be successful there. So I was able to learn a lot very quickly. And then I was also lucky that, you know, some of my biggest clients there were consumer companies and where we buy, you know, we got access to the boardroom and we're attending board meetings and helping approve board decks. And they were going through a lot of the decision-making around, you know, what type of stand they would take in the future. And, you know, Nike was one of my main clients while I was there and, we all know sort of what they've been doing um, of recent in terms of taking a bigger stand on kind of social and environmental issues. And it was, it was nice to be a part of that early, I don't know, That's insights awesome. of it, even though I was just, you know, fly on the wall, staying silent um, in the background. Yeah. I bet you took a lot of, there was probably a lot of takeaways from that experience that has probably helped you as you know, co-CEO of your own company now. So you were there for two years, then you were an associate at, at Velos Partners. You were an investor in the LA community. We kind of touched on that earlier, but what was, um, you know, and then you were at Surfair. What were some of the takeaways, I guess, from all of your experiences that you think has really helped you as an entrepreneur now being kind of in that founder seat? Truthfully, I think one of the biggest ones is the people that you work with matter so much. And that's what I like would stress with for anyone starting a company or honestly just like doing business and normal life that like life's too short to have the people kind of exhaustion, I think really weigh on you. And I feel lucky in kind of recent times with the relationship I've built with my co-founder and the other partners that we've built around that. I think that kind of relationship development has been such a big part of it. I so I joined a startup venture capital firm out of Goldman. I loved everything about the job other than the two main partners didn't get along. They ended up basically divorcing. Fun doesn't exist because of personnel issues. And I think being, you know, a kid caught in that divorce and sort of living through that, it like really weighs on you. And then I think that I ended up um, for a whole host of reasons, joining one of our portfolio companies that was in trouble. It started as like part-time work. They needed help from one of their investors and very quickly was like, Ryan, you just need to go in there and solve issues. I never expected to work at a startup airline, but some things are driven just by need. And I think there were also just a whole host of, you know, personal issues there too, which we, we threw out the founding team because the founding team didn't get along with the board. And, and in recreating the team, there were a lot of just personnel issues. And I think, you know, not to dwell on that, but a lot of the lessons learned, I think in those early days were just around just the people side being number one, sort of most important of that is your, that is your value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's another, yeah, that's really interesting. Those are such good lessons to see and experience early on. I'm, I'm sure I'm wondering how you kind of, with kind of seeing that firsthand in two different situations, right? Like you finding your own co-founder for your own business, how nerve wracking that might've been because you've seen the ugly side of that. Yeah. And I, and I, to give my like co-founder credit, like, I think she was patient with me because I was very cautious. I think having seen multiple situations kind of just go the wrong way. And I was really like, I think ready to take my time because it, I think those, the work before and the emotionality around it really took a toll on me. And I think I was, I think in many ways, we, when I met my business partner, we were next door neighbors, our first year of business school. I was not yet ready to admit like how big of a toll it had taken on me. And I think it took like a couple of years to fully process, but Julie, like thankful for her. I think she can be someone who, when she knows what she wants, she just goes for it and like, make sure it happens. And she had an instinct that we were going to be like a great team and we are. And I was very much like, Oh, I need to be careful. Let's take our time. And like, like, let's make sure it's all okay. And I think 
both of us, it was helpful to have both because I think she pushed me in ways that I had so many fear that maybe wouldn't have taken the next step. And then I forced us to do like partnership coaching from day one. So we actually worked with like a Stanford coach who led a bunch of the touchy feely classes that Stanford business school is famous for all around interpersonal dynamics. And we started working with her one-on-one basically from day one of us testing out, would we be good partners? And though it seems like a lot to do before you even have a, you know, finalized like business idea or what exactly you're doing, I think it built, it built such a foundation for our relationship that I'm now just so grateful for because there is just so much, um, I think, trust between the two of us. Yeah. You said partnership coaching. I've never, well, I've heard of like executive coaching, but is this like a specific coach that helps with co-founders? Yeah. It's like effectively like marriage coaching, but for your business partner. Yeah. And so did you guys start that before you made the commitment to go all in as co-founders? Yeah. So basically like I had us pay money before we were even all in to be co-founders to make sure I was ready to be all in. That's hilarious. Did you guys do like personality tests and like, yeah, all of that kind of go through. There's all, I guess, partially like she has like a curriculum of things for you to work through and you'll go through, you know, businesses like money. Like what are your first memories about money? Because I think that can often be setting budgets. How do you spend? How much do you want to raise can be issues that, you know, raise a lot of conflict. How much do you pay each other conflict within, um, within founding companies early on. And so we went through like, you know, what are our earliest memories of money and how does that drive our psychosis now? And a whole host of other things like that. So she would have prepared things for us to work through. And then also as things kind of came up or we needed to make decisions was there to talk us through it in real time as well. It was amazing. Like I feel you know, so lucky that we were able to do it. And we continued working with her our first, I guess for three years, our first three years of of working together. So it was an amazing kind of foundation. And I think we probably will go back and work with her again at some point, but we feel like we now have this like, okay, what would Anna Maria say? And like that alone is an, a way to just like, when there is like some tension as there is with any relationship, us to be able to self-resolve it quite quickly on our own. And now we're gonna take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Have you ever experienced lost sales due to downtime caused by a corrupt CSV, malicious attack or rogue third-party app? Even if it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. That's why brands like Pier 1 Import, Lord & Taylor, Hasbro, and Staples use Rewind to keep their store protected. Rewind gives you peace of mind, protects your data, and saves you time and money by easily restoring your data, automatically backing up and keeping a record of every change you make. Get a 30-day free trial with Rewind today by going to rewind.io slash stairway to CEO. That's R-E-W-I-N-D io slash stairway to CEO. Spring is in the air, which means summer will be here in no time. But is your patio or backyard ready for action? With Outer, you can get your outdoor space decked out with the best looking sustainable sofas, chairs, coffee tables, eco-friendly rugs, and don't forget their celebrity favorite, bug shield blanket to keep those mosquitoes away. Want to check it out for yourself? Browse over a thousand outer customers' backyards online and visit a neighborhood showroom in your own neighborhood to experience outer products in person before you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture purchases with the promo code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. 
I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So how did you come up with the idea for Needed? What was that kind of aha moment? What's the story behind realizing you had to do this company? Yeah, it it was kind of surprising, but it was all developed like very organically. Like, so Needed for those listening is a prenatal nutrition business. Neither Julie or I were moms when we started it. So I think you can get a lot of the questions of like, how did you get so interested in prenatal nutrition before you were even, either of you were even trying to be moms. Which was when, 2017? Or when did you guys kind of start thinking about it? Started thinking about it and yeah, end of 2016, early 2017. And yeah, so you didn't have kids yet. And you're like thinking about a, a prenatal. No, like I'm, I'm, you know, due with my first in any day now. Oh my God. So. <laughs> any day now, really? Oh my yeah. gosh. Well, congratulations. <laughs> That's amazing and exciting and terrifying. Yeah, it is. It is, like it, it is very exciting and we're thrilled and, but you know, kind of a, a shocking thing of like, okay, you've been working on a prenatal nutrition business for four years and you're like, just now, like you know, um, well, Hey, at least you get to reap the benefits of it. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it did. I will say like, I feel very lucky for feeling very, um, supported, um, going into motherhood for sure. Um, but I think it really started. So both of us, both Julie and I had been kind of lifelong health enthusiasts. I think I mentioned some of the early things I was drawn to it as a kid in terms of yoga and middle school and drinking kombucha. And I did all the health things, from day one, you know, as an environmental science major, a good portion of my work was focused on food systems. And I knew a ton about how do you source like regenerative meats and eat appropriately and yada, yada, yada. Like I spent a good portion of my like free time and energy on healthy living. And Julie was very similar. And, and though neither of us, I guess I was married at the time, and she was engaged. So we both had, you know, partners we knew one day we wanted to start families with, but neither of us were ready to be mothers yet at that time. But we did have a bunch of friends that were. Our, we ran in our business school class, I would say, and very much like a married woman crew. And a lot of our friends were beginning to, to have babies. And I think just like watching them, watching close friends go through it, you learned a lot more. And we were just surprised in seeing the gamut of issues that they had um, from, you know, infertility to hyperemesis all throughout pregnancy through postpartum depression and sort of the list goes on. How nutrition was never spoken about as like a tool that could help them. And that just didn't sit right for us, even if nutrition couldn't solve it. I think we had so much faith in the healing power of nutrition that um, we were just curious to learn more. So I think it started as some like school projects. You have a lot of extra time in business school to do research projects and one thing led to another. And I think pretty much confirmed nutrition is lacking from the standard of care. And that as we dug even further, we both did some pretty extensive nutritional testing for ourselves and found we were both very nutritionally deficient, despite spending a lot of care and attention on our diets, which led us to be like, okay, if we're, if our picture looks like this, and if we were going to be pregnant at this point in time, it really isn't an optimal picture. And prenatal supplements as they exist right now 
wouldn't get anywhere close in terms of filling in the gaps for our needs. We can't be alone. There must be a problem here. We want to be supported better when we are mothers one day. And it truthfully just, I think, grew from there as like it was a problem that captivated us both as it mattered for our lives going forward and our friends. And we felt that we could make an impact to make it better. Yeah. And what were you seeing as kind of um, what was lacking? Because there's prenatal gummy vitamins, like there's stuff on the market, right? So what were you seeing that was missing? Yeah. So the basics as it stands is research will suggest that 97% of women will take a prenatal vitamin. So there's no problem in terms of women are taking them during pregnancy. The issue is, is that upwards of 95% of those women, the research suggests, are nutrient deficient and a number of key nutrients that are supportive for different health outcomes for both mom and baby. So the basics was like prenatals weren't cutting it. And the main reason why is most prenatals are designed around the RDAs, which are kind of the percent daily facts that you see on the side of the supplements label. Like, are you getting your 100% daily value of vitamin C? Those are rooted in research from World War II. There's been some updates made since, but very minor. But the philosophy is really around how do you avoid a disease condition, which is just very different from a philosophy that we resonated with more of how do you support your body optimally at this stage, you know, pregnancy and nursing are the two most nutritionally intensive times of a woman's life. And why do we want to support ourselves, our babies with avoiding a disease condition mentality versus where the research is showing optimal outcomes are actually kind of sitting. And I think it's just been that way for years for a combination of a whole host of reasons, but a lot of it is driven by nutrition isn't taught in medical school. So main care provider for most women is an OBGYN. OBGYNs are amazing and super well-intentioned, but they don't know how to evaluate nutrition. So most will say, take any prenatal, it doesn't matter as long as it has kind of folic acid. Well, to I think, understand and, you know, digging into the latest research and speaking to a much wider kind of breadth of nutritionally informed practitioners that kind of operate under a different protocol than the standard of care, how, how much better kind of like outcomes can be for women. And really, we were looking to just make access to that optimal nutrition support much more accessible, both through you know, better products and through just better education around the issues because it's overwhelming. There's so much you need to figure out and it's not easy to know like what's the right dose or right nutrient form such my body can use this in order to look at, you know, a supplement, a prenatal supplement label. Right, exactly. And so when you were like, okay, we've got this concept or this idea, how did you go about trying to validate it? You know, I know you're like, we're going to need this. I'm sure other pregnant women need this, but what were those steps that you guys took to validate the concept? Truthfully, the biggest aspect was, I think we, there's a combination. There were some, you know, friend interviews that we began with and just consumer interviewing and trying to move outside of our friend group to just validate, was there a problem? But what really accelerated our learning was, and what drove all of our initial kind of development and growth of the business was being able to get uh, a wider breadth of practitioners involved. And I would say it was these practitioners, so registered dietitians, naturopathic doctors, certain chiropractors, certain more integrative obstetricians, pediatricians um, that perform in a more nutritionally way that really validated that they see better outcomes when women are on more supportive supplement regimes, but it is very difficult for their patients unless they're highly motivated to get on those supplement regimes because no one is making it easy and you're buying like 10 different bottles from 10 different companies. 
So it was really, I think, the practitioners that helped us kind of validate the need and create the solution that they felt this is what we would want. This is what we think would make the difference for our patients and let us help help introduce you to some of our patients that, you know, we can talk about it. And if you made it, would they think that they would take it? And that drove a lot of the early, okay, we have, we have something here in terms of folks, there seems to be demand if we're able to make it. And I think what took longer than we expected was getting the products right, such that we were ready to basically release a new prenatal supplement protocol and saying like, these are the dosages and nutrient forms that we really can stand behind. And a lot of that was because we were catering to an audience of sort of the most discerning constituent base because the practitioners that we were going after were the pickiest of the pickiest and the most knowledgeable around nutrient forms and dosages. So it was a, it was a four-year kind of R&D process to get to our base kind of product introduction, our complete plan, which we're known for right now, which is a a multivitamin, an omega-3, a pre and probiotic, and a collagen for products to give you kind of your complete support for pregnancy before, during, and after pregnancy. And I guess validating that protocol took a long time with the basics of, we knew this standard of care didn't work, look to the research, but women's health issues are so understudied that there's so many gaps in the research that you couldn't design a product based off of clinical studies alone, that the next stage again was driven by these practitioners, but we, we wanted to get enough data from different practices um, to, to know that we were really introducing something that we could be confident with because, you know, pregnant women and newborn babies isn't something that you can really get wrong. Right. It's like, Hey, anybody want a beta test? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'll pass. (laughs) Yeah. And there was, oh my gosh, there's some of that of like there we, so basically we'd kind of landed on, we were the basic concept of what we were going to do in our second year of business school and our senior spring of business school or second year spring, we took kind of a famous class at Stanford called Launchpad run out of the design school, which is help you you really get startups off the ground. And you really have like very short cycles for where you have to build a website or do a next test. And it's really all about iterating and learning how to get customer feedback really quickly. And we had a lot of tension, I think, with the professor base, because they were like, you know, wanting us to like, Bake it till you make it. And why don't you just give them like white flour and dye it red and see if what, you know, the pregnant women think about it to give you feedback on taste and just, you know, running into this, like, we can't like sample in that way with <laughs> pregnant women is one thing for, I don't know, like some software company to iterate to that regard, but we need a lot more like caution and discretion around what we're handing out for consumption to pregnant mamas <laughs> and their little babies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And so, you know, there's so many challenges in building a business. And I know you mentioned one of them just being that it took a lot longer to develop the product. What other challenges have you faced in building the company that maybe you weren't expecting? Cause you've been in the investor seat, right? And there it's, and, but you have worked obviously at a portfolio company and stuff as well. But I'm just curious from being in the investor's chair to now really being in the, you know, trenches of your own business. What do you feel like you had no real idea about before that you kind of maybe wish you knew this earlier or just challenges you faced along the way that you just, you know, couldn't believe it. We were lucky, I guess these are sort of interrelated of, we were lucky in our fundraising process that both Julie and I having worked and in investing beforehand, I think had a lot of, you know, contacts with investors. So we were able to get a lot of meetings. I think there was a lot of lessons learned around, especially having been on the other side and, you know, recapping 
the company that I worked for and completely replacing the management team and taking control as a from the investor side of the board, like how things could go wrong, that we were, I think, very careful with picking a lot of our early investment partners and loved kind of the main the main woman that ended up landing on our board. And she was a serial entrepreneur herself before becoming a founder and is like amazing. I have so much like high respect for her. But I think even with that, you need to remember sort of as a founder to listen to your own gut sometimes. And I think one of the earliest mistakes we made was you know, she was like, first board meeting, I just put a bunch of money into you guys. Like, what's your hiring plan? Like, let's get people on board here quickly. So, and we, I think Julie and I weren't like fully ready to bring on additional employees and there are still, you know, R&D stuff to sort out. But I think we kind of listened to, nope, our, our board's pushing us. Like we should hire, it could be nice to be help, have help. Like think of all the other, additional things that you can do. So we hired a team and and the manufacturing side still like wasn't anywhere close to being ready to go. So we ended up having to lay off our team not that long later. So that was, I think, one of the, the hardest things we've done because I think letting down, you know, people in that way was something that weighed hugely heavily on us. And I think from that, like, first mistake and things taking longer, we, we then operated as a team of two full-time way longer than we should have. And we just rehired a team a month ago, like uh, two weeks ago, basically. They started at the beginning of January. So we, like, we've now been in market for effectively a year. It's been a couple of months, maybe more than that, give or take. But between, we had some things that launched on pre-order, but everything really started shipping a complete plan that we're known for because of COVID supply chain related delays, which added to the you know length to get to launch with on top of the R&D challenges. And you know we're hearing now, like, you know, I think a lot of praise for it of we've never seen two people we've been growing very quickly and I've been lucky for that, that the finally, when we did finally get these products to market, we've done enough beta testing and research that they've done extraordinarily well. And we're, we're like struggling to stay in stock um, versus to grow, which is awesome. But it led to a lot of fear, I think. And we finally hired like out of just complete desperation because um, we got to a point where like, it was just, it was just stupid for like the two of us to be running. Like we had plenty of consultants, but for it to be a two employee shop and anyways, that long story said, but hiring timing. And I think is, is very important again, back to the people side and, but being able to sort of know when it feels right for you as the founding team not in some ways kind of just doing it because you're someone that you trust as you should. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it's really tough because, you know, you want, you bring on these small people or these very smart people as a founder, you want to have these strategic investors. You want to have the best of the best on your board and you want to soak up everything they say, because you're just like, you must know so much more than me. I've never done this before. I'm just going to cling on to your every word. But even if they are just the smartest person, I really believe what you said is true. Like you actually are the only one who knows what your company needs. And it's really important to be able to hear and listen to yourself and zero in and focus on like you and your co-founder, what you feel is best. Cause you guys know, cause you're in it more than anybody else on the outside. Who's looking in and saying, Hmm, I think you should do X, Y, Z. It's easy to do that. It's and just because like you go through the motion of, and I think, you yeah. know, coming off of business school too, like so much of the dialogue is around how well you can hire, like how good of a manager you can be that you're very much like fled with this is the step. And yeah, I mean, that was a very hard decision. And I think like 
it was a, a good lesson learned. And I think we have a lot to be grateful for that we were able to take it then as far as we did as a team of two. And then now I think in rehiring, I feel like we, we really hired for the types of people that were really like a great fit and where we really do need help. And they'll have a lot of longevity with the business too. Yeah. Well, and so that sounds like a quick hiring and firing uh, situation from before. Lots of lessons learned, I'm sure in that alone, those processes. And so how much have you guys raised so far? What was the fundraising process like? I know you guys, you said you have obviously lots of connections from your time in that space. Were you kind of, were there any meetings where you're a little taken back by what they said or what their response was? Oh, for sure. We quickly learned in a few early meetings that we had that our vision wasn't going to be a fit for a lot of investors that others would sort of die to have on their cap table. And oh my God, we had a like a plethora of just funny early meetings from one like, you know, pretty famous venture capitalist. Um, just we were making powdered products out of the gate. And he's just like, you can't just sell like powdered products and like a bag or a bottle. Like you need some contraption to make sure they like flow beautifully into a water bottle. So it's much more fun for like a pregnant mom to take it. And he spent like <laughs> 25 minutes. We couldn't get him to stop like talking through this concept and how it can be like the Juicero, the prenatal supplements business. And we were just like, what is going on? Like, Juicero for those who are listening and may not know. I mean, <laughs> basically, correct me if I'm wrong. It was like this juicer, essentially that they raised so much money. Everybody was rallying around this juice thing and literally you just don't need the machine no like and they also sold their proprietary packets that can only fit in the machine but people realized that you could actually it was easier to just squeeze it out by hand in your glass than use the 400 machine to do it for you so there's plenty of meetings like that 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 was the most like egregious one but I think like we from the beginning had a pretty clear vision of what we wanted to build and that vision I think you just quickly realized just didn't align with a lot of ways investors will invest or underwrite things and I think being patient to make sure you found the right investors that got your your like target consumer got your go-to-market plan saw the the like I think the product market fit the founder market fit and wasn't trying to kind of derail you in another direction was important, but it took a while. And I think even for us being sort of well-connected, there's like moments where fundraising has been a big chore, but we've been lucky that every time, like we've, we've ended up with like just the best people around the table. Um, we've raised almost $6 million to date that's a lot. You guys have only been in market for like a year. Yeah, uh, we, but we've been, we started, we've been oh alive. Yeah. For <laughs> Product development took a long time. All right, I totally get it. But still, yeah. even then, like six mil is a, that's a hefty amount for pre-seed, essentially. That's awesome. So when you were talking about these it kind of reminds me of limiting beliefs. You know, you kind of like, even though you guys had such great connections, you still were faced with naysayers, people trying to come up with like innovative ideas, <laughs> trying to be a founder when they're actually an investor. You can be both, but I always love a good um, investor meeting that they're just trying to change everything about what you try to do. <laughs> and so you were saying that, you know, these negative things that they say, they, may, they make you question sometimes what you're doing right? Because you can, when you get no so many times, you're like, are we on the right track here? Or are we so crazy? You know, can we really pull this off? And maybe it wasn't fundraising, but was it anything else? Like what kind of other limiting beliefs did you have to overcome to get to where you are? I think on the, the fundraising side, the part that probably was hardest for me is I, I tend to be a little bit of like a no bullshit. Here's the reality. And someone that like really values like honesty and in, like integrity. And I think the 
sometimes that can be very difficult to balance with like, how do you kind of paint this big impossible vision that most investors are looking for? And I think that was definitely my like toughest like part of fundraising was figuring out how I could reconcile the two of like, we are absolutely like have a big vision going after a big problem, but how do you paint that story in a way that doesn't feel like out of integrity for where we are right now? And I think I had, you know, I think some lessons learned and training around how to be able to do that better and really be able to sell your vision, which didn't, didn't always come as naturally to me as I think it can for, you know, some other founders who, you know, I have some founders who I feel like, like, I'm just like, what bullshit are you like spitting out right now? Love them to death. Like, seriously? (laughs) Right. They just get talking. And next thing you know, they're they're just talking about some crazy stuff. And you're like, you sound really great, but I actually know your business and you're talking a lot of shit right now. (laughs) Yeah. Like it doesn't align with anything that's actually there, like behind, behind the scenes. And, you know, I think in some, like, I think that, um, that is more of the norm in a traditional kind of like Silicon Valley environment that I had a harder time molding myself to probably. So that was one that's big. I think, um, I don't know, there's plenty of others. I definitely, I'm a, an introvert. So I think as someone that very much, you know, relates to kind of an energy conservation kind of mentality, (laughs) which I think can also, again, be in conflict with the constant of startup life. But, you know, people will say I'm like an insanely hard worker, but I'm also someone that like, I think, I think I'm trying to get over the limiting belief of like, there is a limit to my energy and it's going to run out unless I can figure out ways to like replenish myself have more of an abundance thought process around your energy level versus it being limited. Exactly. Yeah. How are you doing that? I mean, so much of it is the, like the, the self-care side of things. I think that like, you know, there are, there are things that I know recharge my battery and things that deplete it. And, but again, that is even like a, a limiting factor of, you know, you have a limiting pool of energy where I think others, maybe don't have that mindset of like, you can keep finding more reserves. And, you know, at times I know I found more than I ever imagined um, for the ability to keep going. But I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, this has taken a lot longer than we had expected to. And those kind of four years before we really got to market, there were some days that were like really hard of, is this worth it? Are we going to get there? Like, you know, there's so many other things like we're both, talented, have Stanford MBAs, like, is this where we should be spending our time? Like, are we going to be, you know, hireable again? You start running through those whole hosts of doubts and like, how much am um, I sabotaging my career right now? Exactly. And I think that like, so there's, I think, you know, a couple of lessons that came out of it. I think one was just knowing for other, you know, prospective entrepreneurs, like listening that like, it's a long game. And I feel like as much as I think my self-preservation kind of defense mechanisms can be a limiting belief, some ways they can also be helpful because you need to give yourself whatever you need such that you can continue to sustain and be able to meet your needs. And I think that can often be forgotten as part of the entrepreneurial journey and lead to burnout. I think the second is, is like, what I think Julie and I both had to, I think, you know, learn early on is just like, what is motivating for us? And like, what is re-energizing? And I think we, at least for me, on days where I was down in the dumps of like, you know, are we going to be able to like, actually be able to make these products? Can we get to market? I would go back to our practitioner base and spend time with them. And then be re-motivated because they would remind me of like how much they really wanted it to be able to exist. And I think I, again, you know, in sort of being motivated by solving problems, 
that was helpful to know that there was this real problem that mattered that would make a difference that we were going after. Um, and I think that was important for, yeah, being able to kind of keep going on some of those, you know, days where you're like, am I, am I really doing the right thing? Yeah. And maybe, you know, also if you weren't pregnant at that time, right? Like some founders get their why from their own situation, but it sounds like you were able to get your fuel and your why from this base of practitioners that kind of helped remind you why you were doing what you were doing. Before we wrap up here, what is next for Needed? Can you share what's kind of coming up next? And I guess any other final advice you have for listeners tuning in about, you know, thinking about building a business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's next for Needed? I mean, we're thrilled that we just launched a ton of new products. So what we launched originally, our complete plan, we think of as our sort of baseline support for before, during, and after pregnancy, but there's plenty of needs on top of that that you may benefit from and are starting on that product suite expansion with um, a number of products that just came out from hydration support, which luckily for me was very kismet timing as in my, I guess, starting in week 35 of pregnancy, I uh, had low um, fluid levels. So was in desperate need of like extra hydration support. Um, and our product came out like just in time for that to be a hitch for me. So anyways, more targeted products is certainly part of the future. And then the biggest thing is we just launched what we're calling the needed change makers. And it's a collective of, um, what will be a hundred plus practitioners from different disciplines, most of them have been part of our kind of product development work over the last four years, but will be more actively advocating about the bigger kind of change in the standard of care that needs to be made. So we will have a lot of sort of effort with them of hearing for kind of more from more practitioners around why there is a problem with prenatal nutrition and um, a whole host of um, areas where education and awareness could help lead to changing sort of the standard of care for more women. Yeah. Like the whole protein thing, you know, I was, I actually had my first kid 10 months ago, so he's almost 10 months. So I've just missed the boat. I feel like with your <laughs> launch, um, but yeah, second round, I'll obviously be your customer, but um, yeah, there's just all types of fears about like what you should and shouldn't be doing and all the things you need to be eating and having as part of, you know, a healthy balanced everything. It's just hard to keep up. Yeah. Yeah, so that's awesome. You've got some cool new products coming out. And then, you know, final advice for those listening, what would you say? Don't do it. I'm just kidding. Yeah, we went through a lot of it from just like people to figuring out what motivates you. I mean, I think that the best advice I can give is just stay authentic to yourself. Like know to always find areas where you have a growth mindset can keep improving, but if you can continue to do things that are in line with sort of your true self, like that's, that's the right path to be on. And that's what you need to look for. Totally. Awesome. Well, Ryan, it was so awesome seeing you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show and sharing your story and building needed. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.